0: Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Normally, we are studying the book of Matthew and going through Matthew's gospel verse by verse, but we're taking a break this month to focus on specific topics. And today, our topic is prayer. Prayer. And to do that, we're going to look at a prayer... um, a prayer that Paul prays inspired by the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you Remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe Father, we pray this prayer for ourselves today. We ask, O God, that we would not cease to give thanks for believers in our lives and those who have brought to us the Word of God. Lord, we pray that You would grant us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of You, that You would cause our eyes, the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened, that we would know what is the hope To which you've called us. And what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints. That we would know what the immeasurable greatness of your power is toward us who believe. According to the mighty working of your great might. And Father we praise you. For your great might. We praise you for raising Christ from the dead. And to know that 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 same power is in us. The, the, the very spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. We praise you for Jesus whom you've seated at your right hand in the heavenly places. That you have seated him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. We, we had elections this week, but we have no king but Christ. We bow to no man but Jesus. And we praise You that He is King of kings and Lord of lords, that He is the Alpha and the Omega. We praise You that all the hearts of these rulers are in His hand and He turns them like a river course wherever He pleases. We praise You for giving us King Jesus who has the name above all names, that that name, Lord, Yahweh. You've given Him that name that is above every name. That every knees shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of you, God our Father. Not only in this age, but in the age to come. We praise you that you will put all things under his feet. That you've given him to be head over all things. To us, the church, you've given him to us as our great heavenly husband. That we are your body, Lord Jesus. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Father, we pray you would hear our prayer and do this in us, even as we study this passage together. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Last Sunday, we focused on the Word of God, especially the preached Word of God, to encourage you to pursue God in His Word in 2023 like you never have before. And today, God willing, we focus on prayer to encourage you to pursue God in prayer in 2023 like you never have before. And to do that, we are meditating on one of Paul's Holy Spirit-inspired prayers for the church in Ephesus. We can learn how to pray by looking at this prayer, but we also learn so much about what God has done for us in Christ. Our sovereign God grants us power to know God. And to know our great hope we have in God. To know God's love for us. That we are called in this passage the very inheritance of God. That we are His inheritance and He delights in us. And to know God's power for us. All this omnipotent power He wields for us. And to know Christ who has all power and authority and who is all in all. And so again, as we we look at this passage, I just want to encourage you to pray the Bible. Pray these prayers. Pray the Bible, pray the Bible, pray the Bible. A a brief overview of this prayer is we see that that Paul has a reason for prayer. He's moved to pray for for reasons that we'll study and he, he begins by giving thanks to God and thanking God. And he prays that we might know God that we might know God, that we might have our eyes enlightened, that we may know God, that we may know the hope that we have in God, that we may know that we're God's inheritance, that we may know God's power. And and then he goes into this sort of praise break at the end of the prayer where he just goes on and on and on about the the greatness of Christ and the greatness of His power and the greatness of God. And he, he, he just sort of goes into this Glorious praise of God at the end. And so let's look at this prayer together. Point number one, Paul's reasons for this prayer faith, love, and God's glorious work of redemption. Look at verse 15 again. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Paul writes that he's praying for this reason. And the for this reason looks forward and backward. It looks forward to the Ephesian Christians' faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints. Paul is praying because he's heard of these believers' faith and love. Their faith and love motivate Paul to pray for them. And he prays that their faith and love will grow. They have faith and love, but there's more to have. And that's a mark of every true believer is that we want more. We have Christ and we want more. We know God and we want to know more. We have faith and we want more. We have love and we want more. We know the love of Christ and we want to know more because it surpasses knowledge. And so so Paul is, is motivated to pray for these Christians in the church of Ephesus because of their love and because of their faith in the Lord Jesus. But the for this reason also looks backward to God's glorious work that made the faith and love of these Christians a reality. And so it looks back to verses 3 through 14 of of chapter 1. Paul gives us this this glorious description of what, what God has done for us in Christ for His glory. And as he meditates on the greatness of God and who He is and what He's done and who we are in Him, it moves him to pray. Let's read that together. Verses... Three through fourteen of Ephesians chapter one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Mark Dever comments that this prayer is a prayer up and out. It's a prayer up, praising God for who He is and and what He's done and for this reason of all these glorious truths about God and, and all these glorious truths about what He's done for us, all for His glory. Did you notice three times in that opening, Paul says this was all the praise of God's glory. And so we pray and, and we adore God. Prayer is, is not merely coming to God and asking for things. But praising God and thanking God. Thank you, Jesus. It would delight my heart if more and more of the prayer requests that you send me were about praising God. Right? Almost every prayer request I send out now some request, usually about physical healing. Right? Almost every prayer request you members get from me over email is a prayer request for some kind of physical healing. No, not an amen moment. (laughs) That's good. It's good to pray for physical healing. It's good to supplicate, to ask for things. But what about praising God? What about thanking God? What about prayers that, that sinners would come to know Jesus? Yes, Lord. Right? And so my prayer for us is that we would grow in that, that more and more of our hearts would be gripped with the greatness and glory and beauty of God and that we would be asking for praises of God and asking, this God is so great, he must be known to people and my neighbors and so that we're praying, Lord, help me be a witness, help me be an evangelist, help me reach my neighbor for Christ who's gonna die and go to hell because you are worthy. Primarily not because you love your neighbor, primarily because for the glory of God that we so love the glory of God that we cannot be at rest until every person in Philadelphia worships our King because He is worthy. And so more and more of our prayers would be that kind of praying. I love the the, the ACTS way of praying. A-C-T-S. Adoration is the first part. Just adoring God. If you've never prayed for an hour, consider ACTS. Just spend 15 minutes praising God. Just praising Him for who He is and what He's done. C, confession. Spend 15 minutes confessing sin. ACT, thanks. Spend another 15 minutes thanking God for all of these done for you. I mean, start from the beginning. Thank you, Lord, for giving my parents conception that I was born. Thank you for knitting me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for allowing me to be born a healthy baby. Thank you, Lord, for for giving me Christian parents if you had those. And you just start from from day one and and thank God for everything that's happened in your life. You'd be praying for 20 hours. And then 15 minutes in supplication. Finally, finally, after all that, all that Godwardness. We're going to ask for some things. And even in what Paul asks, notice how Godward it is. Yes. It's not for a new house. It's not for a new car. It's not even for physical health that we might know God. Hallelujah. We learn the priorities of God when we look at the prayers of the Bible. Number two, Paul's ceaseless thanks and ceaseless prayers. Look at verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul always gives thanks to God for others. Have you noticed that? I've made this point in other places as we've studied Paul's writings. He he never thanks people. He always thanks God for people. Anthony was a, uh, an example of that yesterday. We we're at the men's breakfast and, and I, uh, I said, thank you, Anthony, for buying the fish. Anthony bought all this fish for us and Ted cooked it. Man, you're missing out on some amazing fish fry. Um, but I thank Anthony. Thank you for buying the fish. And Anthony said, don't thank me. Thank God. He's the one who enabled me to buy it. Hey. Amen. Amen. Thank God for you. I thank God for you, Anthony. I thank God for your generosity. I thank God for your giving heart. Thank God for people. I do not cease to give thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers, Paul thanks God for people. And and he says, I don't cease to do this. Paul prays without ceasing. He's obeying his own writings in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Pray without ceasing. What does that mean to pray without ceasing? I love how one pastor describes it with three basic points on praying without ceasing, which Paul is doing here. Number one, there's a spirit of dependence that should permeate all that we do. I can't preach today without God. And I went to him in prayer and told him that. Did did you come here today saying, I can't be here today and listen and get anything profitable from this God unless you come and help me? Pray it right now. Lord, I can't stay awake. I can't profit. I can't focus. Help me hear what King Jesus wants me to hear by being with your people today. Amen. A spirit of dependence permeates all that we do. Number two, pray repeatedly and often. We pray over and over and over again and we pray often is what it means to pray without ceasing. And number three, it means don't stop praying. Don't ever give up. Ever. Ever. Some of you maybe have been praying for things for years and haven't seen answers. Jesus says, keep praying. And don't lose heart. Keep praying. Keep asking. Keep keep being that that widow, right, who went to the unjust judge and would not let him go until he blessed her. And so like Jacob wrestling with the angel, you, you wrestle and wrestle and wrestle and say, I will not let you go until you bless me. And so keep praying. Never, ever give up. And so Paul prays like this. He gives thanks to God and he prays for them ceaselessly. Number three, Paul's object in this prayer. Look at Paul's object in this prayer, verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that's who Paul is praying to. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that is the object of his prayer. As believers, we can pray to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, they are God. But the normal pattern we see in Scripture is prayer addressed to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. And here Paul prays to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. We see the two persons of the Trinity here, the Lord Jesus Christ and his God, the Father of glory. And we just saw in verse 6, 12 and 14 of chapter 1 that that God is doing all this redemptive work in history. Why? For the praise of his glory. So how appropriate then would he pray to the Father of glory? The Father of glory. One has described the glory of God as the the, the outward manifestation of His holiness. When His holiness goes public, the the intrinsic infinite value and beauty of God, when that goes public, that's the glory of God, often described as light and weight in the Bible. It's it's God's uh, self-disclosure of Himself. It's also God's domain, His his presence, His very presence in where He dwells. He's the Father of glory. D.A. Carson writes, glory is often associated both with God's domain and with His gracious self-disclosure. Thus it is the God of glory who appears to Abraham when he is still in Mesopotamia. When Moses wants to know more of God, he begs the Almighty to show him His glory. And this God does, even if it is only the trailing edge of His glory. Jesus wants to return to the domain of his father to the glory he shared with the father before the world began. Yeah. Even so, when he has been doing even so what he has been doing on the earth, what he does supremely on the cross is to manifest God's glory. Glory is the Christian's ultimate destination and already we are being transformed into the Lord's likeness with ever increasing glory. 2 Corinthians 3:18. Thus, for Paul to pray to the Father of glory is to confess his awareness of God's proper domain, to articulate his gratitude for God's gracious self-disclosure and to hold up the Father's domain as the Christian's ultimate hope. He prays to the Father of glory. And beloved, just think with me briefly of, of what an unbelievable honor it is that you and I can call God Father. I shared with you two thoughts; these two thoughts when we... Uh, went through the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. J.I. Packer says adoption, that, that you are adopted into God's family, that you can call God Father. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher even than justification. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater Beloved, do you know the greatness of the fact that you were adopted by God? Behold what manner of love the Father has given to, unto us that we should be called the children of God. De Young writes, Jesus wants us to call the God of the universe. The God who made the world out of nothing. The God who calls all of the trillions of stars out by name. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. The God of the glory cloud filling the tabernacle. The God who shakes the cedars of Lebanon. The God who showed himself to Daniel as the Ancient of Days. The God before whom no one can stand face to face and live. Jesus wants us to call this God Father. This is the object of Paul's prayer, the Father of glory. And a little side note, beloved, this passage teaches us that Jesus is God. Amen. For Jesus is called the Lord of glory. 1 Corinthians 2, 8, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. Father of glory, Lord of glory. James 2.1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Father of glory, Lord of glory. Jesus is God. And so Paul's object in prayer is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Point number four, Paul's petitions in this prayer. Paul's petitions in this prayer. Verse 17, Paul prays that the Father may give These Ephesians, a spirit of wisdom and of knowledge, of revelation and the knowledge of God. Paul prays that the Father would give them a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of of God. Paul prays that the Christians in Ephesus will be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. He wants them to know God more. To know God. That, that, that's the heart of this, this prayer that he, he wants these, these Christians who, who know God to know him more. I mean, you, you might ask, why, why would he pray for Christians to know God? They already know God because he wants them to know him more. There's always more to know, there's always more for us to know. Even in eternity, there will be more for us to know. That's why theologians speak of, of the ever increasing joy of heaven. Because we're, we're finite creatures and God is the infinite God. And so it will take us infinity forever to get to know God. And the more we know of God, the more happy we will be, the more yeah. joyful we will be. And so heaven will not be boring. It will be ever-increasing happiness. Like you, you, you can think of times in your life where you have these peak happinesses. And guess what? There's the next day. Yep. And you go down. Yep. You have these high points and go down, up and down, happy, sad, happy, sad. Our, our emotions, our feelings are so fleeting. Not in heaven. Up forever. Just more. More happiness. More joy. Then it really is truly better than the day before always. We want to know him more now. We want to know him more now. And that's what Paul's praying for. That they would know God. That you would know God. Some argue that the Spirit here, notice in some translations, give you a spirit of wisdom and, and of revelation. Some argue that it should be the Spirit. It can be translated either way. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And I, I favor that reading because it's, it's, it's only through the, the Holy Spirit of God that we can know God. That He would give us the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know God. And to know God, we need our hearts enlightened. We we need our hearts, that center of our being, that that center of will and, and thought and emotions and action and everything that makes us, us, the heart, the center of our being. We need our hearts enlightened to know God. Verse 18, Paul prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. This knowledge of God only comes when God himself enlightens our eyes. Just as this happened when we were first converted, it has to keep happening that we might know God more. Acts 16, 14, remember Lydia? The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. We need God to do that for us. We need God to do that for us when we come here on Sundays that He would open our hearts to hear what God says to His people. We need God to do that for us when we come to His Word, when we read regularly God's Word. We, we need God to open our eyes, to enlighten us, to understand what He says to us. I, I love these IOUs that John Piper taught me years ago. And I pray this almost every time I come to the Bible, I pray through these IOUs. Almost every time. I incline my heart to your testimonies. Psalm Oh, open my eyes to see wonderful things in Your Word. Psalm 119.18 You, unite my heart to fear Your name. Psalm 86.11 And S, satisfy me in the morning with Your steadfast love that I might be joyful in You all my days. Psalm 90.14 Beloved, when you come to the Word of God, pray that God would do that for you that He might open your eyes to behold wonders in His Word. Next, Paul prays that they would know what is the hope to which God has called them in verse 18. That they would know the hope to which God has called them. I mean, beloved, do you have hope this morning? Maybe you come here without hope. Maybe you come here hopeless. God has given us reasons to have hope. To have hope. This is why we read the Bible. Right, Romans 15 says he's given us the scriptures that we might have hope. And 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 he prays here that we would know the, the hope of our calling. We have a great hope through God in Christ. Hope of salvation. Hope to be forgiven of all of our sins. Hope to be uh, declared righteous in God's sight. Hope to be adopted by God. Hope to have God as our Father. Hope to have Jesus as our elder brother. Hope to be totally satisfied in Jesus. Hope of everlasting joy. Hope of pleasures that increase forever and ever and ever as we've spoken about. D.A. Carson says this hope is nothing less than life in the new heaven and the new earth. Life in the presence of God it is the hope of the glory of God, Romans 5, 2. The hope of sharing that glory. The hope of appearing with Christ in glory at the end, Colossians 3, 4. It is the anticipation of being presented to Christ without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless, Ephesians five twenty seven. This is our hope. <laughs> However hopeless you came in this morning, if you know Jesus and he knows you, we have great hope awaiting us no matter how bad things are now, we have hope. And hope is a powerful motivator to keep going, to not give up, to not despair, to not lose heart, to be radical in how you love and sacrifice for others. Because in a very short time, short time, we're going to be face to face with King Jesus. And we have a great hope we have great hope. Paul prays that they would know the hope of their calling. Verse 18, Paul prays that they would know what is the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Now it's true, God does give us an inheritance. It it, it was mentioned in chapter 1. Right? God gives us a glorious inheritance. We, We get to share in the glory of God. God promises us the whole world. All things are yours. The world. We have a great inheritance in Christ. But right here, this passage is talking about the fact that we are God's inheritance. We are the inheritance of God, that we would know how much God loves us, cares for us, delights in us as his inheritance, that we are his people. That's what this prayer is that we would know what are the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Those aren't special people who've done special things and get get knighted or sainted by the church. Any Christian is a saint, any believer is a saint. Saint Russell, Saint Michael, Saint Becky, Saint Lena, Saint Monette, Saint Lois. St. Bob, St. Tanya, St. Chris, St. Leslie. If you're a believer, you're saints. You're set apart for God. You're sainted by God. And you're God's glorious inheritance. That's who you are. Do you know that? You're God's glorious inheritance, that's your identity. You're not an alcoholic. You're not a recovering alcoholic. You're God's glorious inheritance. Paul thinks it's important for you to know who you are. We are God's very heritage, your inheritance. This, 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 this truth is, is, is spoken of in the Old Testament. 1 Kings 8.53, Solomon prays, And says, for you separated them. Praying to God, for you, God, separated them, God's people, Israel, from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage. Psalm 94, 14, for the Lord will not forsake His people. He will not abandon His heritage. Friend, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been brought into the commonwealth of Israel. Those promises belong to you now. You are God's heritage. You are God's inheritance. D.A. Carson writes, already in this chapter, Paul has told us that God will redeem those who constitute His possession at the consummation, uh, Ephesians 1.14. We are God's inheritance. To use the language of the fourth gospel, we are those whom the Father has given to the Son, yes. His gift to His Messiah. The thought would be incredible. And, and sometimes people use the word incredible meaning, that's amazing, Right here, D.A. Carson is using it unbelievable, not really believable, not really true. (laughs) That would not really be true were it not for the fact that God sees us in Christ. God's valuation of his people is established by his valuation of Christ. We need to know who we are as God sees us. Paul wants us to appreciate the value that God places on us not because we are intrinsically worthy, but because we have been identified with Jesus Christ. We have been chosen in Christ. His righteousness has been reckoned ours. Our destiny is to be joint heirs with Him. If we maintain this vision before our eyes of who we are, nothing less than God's inheritance, we will be concerned to live in line with this unimaginably high calling. You see, this is a motivator for holiness. We don't act that way. We're God's inheritance. (laughs) Sometimes you hear fathers say to to their sons, son, we don't act like that. We're Osbournes. We don't act that way. We're Randalls. We don't act that way. We're Evans. Hmm. We don't pursue sin. We're God's inheritance. We belong to God. I mean, Paul uses that argument in places like 1 Corinthians 6 to, to, to push us away from sexual morality. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. You're the, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Live like who you are. And so, beloved, know who you are. I mean, know that God calls you the apple of His eye. He says, Don't tu- you, you touch them, you touch the apple of my eye. Don't mess with them, Zechariah 2.8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, After his glory, sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Beloved, you're the apple of God's eye. Do you know that God sings over you? He rejoices over you. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. How many of us have a view of God where he's holding a finger? You're bad, you're bad, you're unholy, you're a sinner, I'm gonna get you. When the, when the vision we should have is God singing over you with delight and joy and love in his eyes. More than any lover you've ever known, more than your mom, more than your father, more than your spouse, God sings and delights over you in love. And everything he does is in love. That's how God views you. If you're a saint, if you're His precious inheritance. And I would just ask that question now. Are you a saint? Friend, maybe you came here because someone invited you. Maybe, maybe uh, you, you, you walked in from the neighborhood just to see what's going on here. And I would ask you this question. Are you a saint? Because these amazing truths only apply to you if you are a saint. Are you a part of God's precious inheritance? Maybe you're here this morning and you say that you're not. You're not a part of God's inheritance. Well, we want to tell you how to become a saint. How do you become a part of God's gracious inheritance? It's through the good news of Jesus. That that, that we don't all start out that way. We we start out uh, as non-saints, as set apart for darkness and sin and evil, and set apart for God's wrath and judgment because of our sin against God. The Bible teaches all of us have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, and we deserve His wrath in hell forever, where the fire will not be quenched and the worm does not die, because we are there as the fuel for the fire, as God's curse and judgment land on us forever. That's what we deserve because of our sin. But God, but God, because, He's, because of the love with which He loved us, He did something to save us from that, to make us saints, to make us his inheritance. And he sent his son, Jesus, the God-man, to come and live a perfectly holy life. He never sinned in thought and word and deed, what, what was perfectly and perpetually perfect and holy and sinless. And he came loving like no man ever loved, serving and praying and preaching and teaching like no man ever did. And and then he died on the cross where he gave his life as a ransom for many. He suffered God's curse and, and judgment and cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was forsaken by God that you would never be forsaken. He was crushed by God that you would be saved. He was abandoned that you might be adopted. He suffered God's wrath. He died on the cross. He was buried. But on the third day, on the third day, unlike any other person who's ever died, He rose from the grave. He conquered sin and death and hell. So that if you turn from your sins today and believe on Him, you shall be saved. You shall be made a saint. You shall be redeemed. You shall be forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future. Reckon righteous in God's sight because of the righteousness of Christ counted as yours. Friend, you can have that by faith alone. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't do enough. You can't pray well enough. You can simply receive Him by faith and trust. Would you do that today? Would you do that today? Would you believe on Him today and be saved? If you do that, then you're a saint. He sets you apart for Himself. And you are His precious inheritance. Which is what Paul prays that these Christians in Ephesus would know. They would know who they are. Verse 19, Paul prays that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward those who believe. Beloved, we have immeasurably great power as God's children. We have immeasurably great power to know God. We have immeasurably great power to trust in God. We have immeasurably great power to delight in God. We have immeasurably great power to obey God. We have immeasurably great power to fight sin and turn from sin. We have immeasurably great power to grow in holiness and be more like Jesus. We have immeasurably great power to persevere to the end, to keep trusting, keep following, keep pursuing God." God, the Father of glory, will keep us. He will hold us fast. And and, and it's here where where Paul sort of goes into this this praise break, if you will, of just just delighting in the power of God and and what it means for us. And and he he goes on to to praise the power of Jesus and and delight in Jesus who has all authority and, and God puts everything under his feet and Christ is all in all. God's power toward and for believers is great might Paul says this power is for you it's with you and for you and toward you Romans 8 31 what then shall we say to these things if God is for us if God's power is for us who can be against us nobody beloved you know the the power of God for you Paul wants the, the, the Christians in Ephesus to know God's power for them To help them, to be with them, to strengthen them. You say it's impossible. God does the impossible. God raised the dead. God's power is for you. Infinite power is for you, believer. Shailene raps in his song, God is the universe's creator and sustainer, plus the only Savior. There is no one greater. He's triune, holy, omnipotent, omniscient, absolute, loving, sovereign, and righteous are a few of his attributes. God is omnipotent. He has all power. He's absolute. He's sovereign. Or the children, the children's song. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. God's power toward and for believers is great might. And Paul wants us to know that. This power toward and for believers is God's power that raised Jesus from the dead. Again, beloved, remember the very Spirit who dwelt in you is the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Yes. Romans eight eleven, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, yes. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Yes. That's the power you have to say no to sin. Mm. The power that raised Jesus from the dead. You can do it. That's the power you have to face whatever trial or hardship that you will see this week. You have that power. This power toward and for believers is God's power that seated Christ at God's right hand, verse 20. The same power that gave Christ His coronation, His seating on the throne of God is the same power that God works toward and for you in your life. Acts 2, 32-33, this Jesus God raised up and that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. We don't think about the ascension very often. Uh, Brother Anthony Butler taught a wonderful Sunday school class on it recently. Uh, Listen to these words about the ascension of Jesus, his, His ascending to heaven and being seated at the right hand of God. Eric Watkins writes, if the resurrection is the main event of history... In the climax of the Christian story, the ascension is the crowning of our King as He sits upon His throne in glory. From there, He bestows many fine gifts upon us, the chief of which is union with Him through the Holy Spirit. In Christ, we find life and fitness for service to the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is our divine rescuer and the lover of our souls. Robert Letham writes, Christ is heir to the cosmos. It was created in Him, through Him and for Him. He maintains it in being and directs it to its appointed goal. The reconciliation He achieved relates not only to the church but to the entire universe. This inheritance He received at His resurrection, His ascension to the Father affecting His enthronement as King. While His Son, He ruled inseparably with the Father and the Holy Spirit in the unity of the indivisible Trinity, this was His investiture as King in His incarnational mediatorial office. In His ascension, Christ publicly displays His conquest of His enemies as in a triumphant victory procession. Christ's realm is universal. He has ascended far above the heavens and now fills all Things. He has passed through His territory and has won the authority throughout His realm. From this, the cosmos will be liberated when Christ returns. By His ascension, Christ establishes the church, granting gifts to it for its preservation and advancement. All that He did and does is in union with us. We were in Him in His ascension. We too have ascended to the right hand of the Father in Christ we too sit with Him in heavenly places. Christ is not King merely over a collection of disparate individuals, but over His covenant people of which individuals are a part. And so that same power that seated Christ at God's right hand is to and for you. This power toward and for believers is God's power that seated Christ above all. Verse 21 far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, Paul writes, Christ is seated. Christ is seated above all rule and authority. Colossians 2, 9 through 10 and 15. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Christ is over all. Children, he's over all the fears of the dark that you have at night, right? Christ is over all. You don't have to fear what's in the dark. Christ is over that. He rules over that. He rules over whatever you fear. All powers and authorities, all the new elected officials, Jesus rules over all. Jesus is given the name far above all names, verse 21. What is that name above all names that is given to Jesus Christ? Lord. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh. That name above all names. There's only one name of all names. It's God. God Almighty. Jehovah. Yahweh. Jesus is given that name. Philippians 2, 5-11. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord. Lord, Jesus is God. <laughs> Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is not just in this age, but also in the age to come. Far above all, he's been seated for all time. For all time. Daniel had a vision of, of this for all-timeness. When he saw one like a son of man in Daniel 7:13 through 14, I saw in the night visions and beheld. With the cloud of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and is of his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. His dominion is forever. And ever and ever and ever. In these elected officials, they get elected and, and then they, 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 get, they get run out of office. Because they don't ever do what people want them to do. Or they die. Jesus' dominion never ends. Amen. He rules forever and ever and ever. And all things, Paul says, are put under Christ's feet. Verse 22. Jesus fulfills Psalm 8, 6. All enemies are put under His feet. Do you have enemies? Do we have enemies? Are we concerned with, with culture wars and, and people uh, uh, speaking about Christians in this way, that way, saying that we're bigots, saying that we're this, saying that we're that? Beloved, Jesus is going to win. And He's going to destroy all of His and our enemies and put them under His feet, which is a sign of absolute rule and dominion. They're there. Jesus is going to put them all there. We're going to win. I mean, read the book of Revelation. If you're with Jesus, you're going to win. No matter how bad it gets, no matter if they cut our heads off and put us in prison, we're going to win. Because Jesus wins. First Corinthians fifteen twenty four through twenty seven. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Verse twenty two says Christ is the head of over all things. He's the head over all things. Christ is the sovereign, ruling authority over all things. He is supreme. He is preeminent. He's superior. He's the greatest. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. I love how John Piper puts it. If there's anything admirable, if there's anything worthy of praise in all the universe, it is summed up in Jesus Christ. He is always infinitely admirable in everything and over everything supreme. He is sovereign and supreme over all plants and animals. He is supreme over all weather and all chemical processes and all the amazing grace of antibiotics. He is supreme over all countries and governments and armies. He is supreme over all nuclear threats. He is supreme over politics. He is supreme over all education and universities, no matter what they teach. And He is supreme over all scholarship and science and research. He is supreme over all business and finance and industry and manufacturing and transportation. And He is supreme over the Internet and all information... As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not one square inch on planet earth over which the risen Christ does not say, mine. This is our God. And God gave Christ to the church, verse 22. This this great, all-powerful, almighty, all-ruling, all-reigning, all-sovereign, all-supreme Christ, God gave to the church. This is the most glorious wedding christ is the heavenly perfect husband the church is the pure spotless bride and and god gives christ the head to the bride the church god created the world to get a bride for his son and we see in this passage paul is praising god that he gives christ to the church and the church is christ's body the church is christ's body Paul probably has this, this blazing on his mind and, and the eyes of his heart because remember in Acts 9 when he's, when he's converted and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul is going to persecute the yes. church. But Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Because that's how Jesus views you, his body, yes. the church. Yes, Lord. The church is the body of Christ. And the church is filled and completed by Christ. The church is filled and and completed by Christ. Verse 23 says, Ephesians 3.19, Paul later prays that, that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Christ fills His body with all His fullness. Ephesians 4.13, Paul writes that God gave gifts to the church until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Christ fills and completes and satisfies His body, the church. Again, listen to what what one pastor said about how Christ loves His bride. The end goal of the creation of God was to provide a spouse for His Son, Jesus Christ, who might enjoy Him And on Him He might pour forth His love. And the end of all things in providence are to make way for the exceeding expressions of Christ's love to His spouse and for her exceeding close and intimate union with and high and glorious enjoyment of Him and to bring this to pass. And therefore the last thing and the issue of all things is the marriage of the Lamb. And the wedding day is the last day, the day of judgment, Or rather, that will be the beginning of it. The wedding feast is eternal. And the love and joys, the songs, the entertainments, the glories of the wedding never will be ended. It will be an everlasting wedding day she shall then be brought to the entertainments of an eternal wedding feast and to dwell eternally with her bridegroom, yea, to dwell eternally in His embraces. Then Christ will give her His love and she shall drink her fill, yea, she shall swim in the ocean of His love. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. And finally, beloved, we see in verses 22 and 23 the fullness of Christ spoken of that the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Very briefly, there are three views on how this phrase is to be understood. Some view this as, as saying that Christ is the fullness. All of these three views are biblical in the sense that they're taught in the Bible. The question is, what does this particular passage teach? Some believe this teaches that Christ is the fullness. And He certainly is, Colossians 2, nine. for in Him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Some, like Calvin and Charles Hodge, believe this is actually saying, this, this might blow your mind, that the church completes Christ. So you, you, can you see that there? The church, which is His body, the fullness of Him. The church is the fullness of Jesus. The, the church completes Christ. Like Adam and Eve. Remember Adam and Eve? Adam, it was not good that man should be So, I'm gonna make a woman to complete him because it's not good. That was it was not good before the fall, right? That not good was before sin. It was not good that man should be alone. And so, I will make a woman fit for him. And and he and God brings the woman to Adam, and then he's complete. Adam's complete, and so, in that same way. Christ dies for his bride and God brings the church to Christ, to complete Christ. Yes. Now, you gotta, you got to be careful with that because there's something you ain't saying in that. Yep. You ain't better not be saying. <laughs> I know I'm using lots of double negatives there, right there. But I'm saying you, there's a, a way you cannot say this and there's a way you can. Now, Christ doesn't need anything to be complete in the sense of his essence and being, right? I mean, he is the fullness of Deity. But in, in, the, in the sense of his mission, and Michael Osborne, Pastor Michael Osborne helped me think about this. I'm just going to quote what I remember him saying. Correct me at the q if I quote you wrongly, Michael. But Michael said, the church completes Christ, not in the sense that Christ in his person or being lacks anything, but in the sense that Christ's mission is completed by all his elect being saved and conformed into his image. He came to save his bride, and when he does this, his mission is complete. And so, in that sense, the church completes Christ because he completes his mission in saving them and making them holy. And then, another final view of how we're to take these words Christ fills the church with his power and life. Christ fills the church with his power and life. So, one commentator says, Christ fills believers with his spirit and His grace, and His gifts. And so this is saying that Christ fills the church to the fullness with His Spirit and grace and gifts. And in that final verse, verse 23, it says Christ does fill all in all. See that? The fullness of Him, Jesus, who fills all in all. One commentator writes, Christ is the one who completely fills everything. That is, the whole of creation. The earthly and the heavenly comprising all of humanity as well as the entire angelic realm, especially the rebellious powers. Christ pervades all things with His sovereign rule, directing all things to their appointed end. And this entails His functioning as the powerful ruler over against the principalities and giving grace and strength to His people, the church. Beloved, just just remember what happened here. (laughs) Paul starts out praying... And then he, he ends just in this glorious praise after praise after praise after praise of the power of God and the beauty and supremacy of Christ. Does that ever happen in your praying? <laughs> you start out praying. You start out praying for one thing and asking for one thing and then all of a sudden you just get taken up in the Holy Spirit and just start praising God for who he is. I mean, if you ever want to hear somebody pray that way, come here at noonday and listen to Sister Lena. She will take you up into the heavenly places with her in Christ Jesus and teach you how to pray. Yes. I still ask God, Lord, when she first came here, when I was here praying, I never heard anybody pray like yes. her pray. And, and my heart's desire is, Lord, I want to know God like this oh, woman knows God. Yes. Yes, I want to pray. I want to learn to pray like she does. Yes, Lord. You ever get taken? That's what happened to Paul here. He just goes on this praise break of thing after thing, glory after glory, truth after truth, of the glory of Jesus. May God teach us to pray. May God teach me to pray. May He teach us to pray. Beloved, pray the Bible. Pray this prayer. Pray it for yourselves that you may know God, that you may know that you're God's inheritance, that you may know the hope that you have, that you may know His power towards you. Pray the Bible. Come to noonday prayer. Come here from noon to one, uh, Tuesday through friday and pray even if you're not here think about that if you if you have that time free consider using that time in your life to pray for an hour i would challenge you to do that think about doing that if you're if you work consider sometimes skipping your lunch break and using that to pray instead consider that we do that on wednesday i encourage people to consider fasting and skipping a meal so that you may pray to god people say i don't have time to pray well you have time to eat So stop eating and pray (laughs) just for a meal a week or or learn to skip lunch every day and just eat breakfast and lunch and pray to God. Use that time to pray to God. We have evening prayer online. We started this when COVID hit. We started a prayer time online at 7 p.m. We do it Monday through Friday. You can join us. And pray to God together. We, we pray through the Bible. We pray through the membership directory every night on that prayer line at 7 p.m. We have Wednesday night Bible study and prayer. We, we're studying the book of Judges and we spend time praying at the end of that prayer time. Prayer in church. Beloved, when you're here and someone's leading prayer from this pulpit, you're praying. This person's leading you, but we're all praying such that we can say amen at the end of the prayer. We're praying here together at church. Family time prayer. Heads of households, mothers, fathers who lead your families. Are you leading your children to pray? Are you having family Bible time? Are you instilling in your young children the need to go before the throne of grace and pray to God? Family devotions. Family prayer. Prayer before meals. Prayer before meals. That's a good habit to do. Prayer with each other. When you're gathered together, when you meet together as believers, pray with and for each other. Personal, private prayer. Do you have a personal, private prayer life? Would you like that to grow in 2023? Talk to God about that. Prayer before Bible reading. Prayer before Bible reading. Seek the Lord to help you understand His Word. And may God help us grow in prayer in 2023. Christ Jesus moves St. Paul to pray with ceaseless thanks and praise array. Our glorious Father hears him say, Grant hearts to know our God who may enlighten eyes without delay. For greatest hope and riches, yea, his powers immeasurable display. For those believing Christ the way, who evil men mock betray, he bore God's wrath, he die, they slay. But then he rose on that third day. He rules o'er all. Don't go astray, but bow to Him. His word obey. He heads the church with perfect sway. Fills all in all. You can't repay. In Christ, you'll always be okay. Our Savior, none can take away. For He's our all and joy and stay. Father, thank You for teaching us to pray. Thank You for giving us this prayer from the Apostle Paul, inspired by Your Holy Spirit that dwells in us. Father, we ask that You would use this to to help us grow in the knowledge of You, that You would enlighten our eyes, that we may know You, that we may know the hope that we have, that we're the inheritance of the saints that You have in in, in us. God, that we would know Your power. Father, we pray that You would teach us to to pray like Paul and have the same priorities that, that he has in prayer. We ask us, God, we ask You, Lord, that this year we as a church would grow in prayer. As individuals, we would grow in prayer. So God, have your way with us and teach us to pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.